0: Coming up on the road to now.
1: Everybody loves their children. You know, we can all share that. And that's something that I do think it's something that connects everyone on the, in this world. And I think, therefore, it connects us after we leave it. You know, my middle son, Brennan, was diagnosed with a, a, with leukemia. He was uh, given a very grim prognosis. And we found our way to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. We were watching Band of Brothers. And he looked over to me and his mom. He said, you know, Mom, Dad, I, these guys got up every day not knowing if they're going to live to see another day. And yet they got up and they fought hard. And he felt like he could relate to them. So this kid is, what, at the time he's eight? I'm on nine. And I do credit his association with those guys to his fighting spirit and his ability to hang in there. Because, like I said, I mean, he was given no chance. Four bone marrow transplants later, he's a miracle.
2: I'm Bob Crawford.
1: I'm Ben Sawyer.
2: And this is the road to now, and it's December 26th. It is. It's my father's birthday and Boxing Day and
0: Boxing Day and the day after Christmas. We hope everyone had a wonderful holiday and that they uh, had a just a chance to be with family and friends and and share some warm times.
2: And it is also the road to now's last podcast of twenty sixteen. 2016 being our first year as a podcast and we're still doing it because you guys are listening and we would like to say thank you.
0: Yes, thank you for making this so successful and so much fun for Ben and I. We wouldn't be able to do this without you guys supporting us and we are eternally grateful for all of your support.
2: And we want to give a special, special thanks to Ian, our producer.
0: Ian Scotta, who came on board. He makes less than no money we actually take money from him (laughs) so he could be our producer but he he came aboard at a time that ben and i were underwater as far as the work that we have to do in our real jobs our other jobs our real jobs and with the work that we have as being fathers and husbands and he really took not only did he take a lot off our plates but he pushed everything further in a way that Ben and I weren't capable of doing ourselves.
2: Right. And so we want to say thank you to him because he's gone out of his way and made this podcast uh, a lot better. I think
0: that's right. In 2017, we're going to double what it costs for him to hang out with us. <laughs> so Just to say,
2: thank you. <laughs> he's got that
0: to look forward to. And what you have to look forward to today is an interview that I conducted a couple weeks ago with Keith Larson, Keith Larson, former uh, talk show host with WBT Radio in Charlotte. Now he has the LarsonPage.com. Uh, it's available on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, Keith is a, a amazing interviewer, uh, just a great guy, a great writer, if anyone's ever read his columns in the Charlotte, Charlotte Observer. And Ben couldn't do this show, so I asked Keith to come on and co-host, and he was very kind in obliging me in that. So we spoke with Turner Simpkins and Turner is the father of a St. Jude patient named Brennan and Brennan had a very severe, rare form of AML uh, leukemia and went through, like all St. Jude kids had uh, just a very hard journey. And so Turner wrote a book about Brennan's journey called Possibilities and i thought that our listeners would enjoy it or get a lot out of it because turner frames brennan's fight against cancer with the band of brothers story from world war ii yeah and turner is an amazing writer very gifted very gifted writer and it's a story about family and the history of a family i just thought everyone would enjoy it and uh I'm honored to to work on the Press-On Fund with Turner and his family, and I just hope that, uh, that people take the time to listen to this episode and uh, get something out of it.
2: And have a great New Year's Eve, and
1: we'll see you in 2017.
0: Take care. Turner Simpkins, welcome to The Road to Now.
1: Thank you, Bob and Keith. How are you all today?
0: Yes, and we do have Keith Larson here as our co-host today. Keith from thelarsonpage.com and a longtime Charlotte radio personality. Keith, thanks for being with us today, too.
3: Hey, I appreciate you asking, uh, Bob. Great to be here. And Turner, nice
1: to meet you. Yeah, you too, man. Thanks so much.
0: Turner, could you take a minute and and tell our listeners a little bit bit about who you are and what you do?
1: A minute? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I guess... Mostly I'm a dad, and I think that's what this conversation is going to be about for the most part. But um, I live in North Augusta, South Carolina, which is the South Carolina side of Augusta, Georgia. Um, I'm in the—I have three kids, three boys, Nat, Brennan, and Christopher, ages 13, uh, 14, and 16, in reverse order. My wife, Tara, we've been married now for 22 years, hard to believe— um i'm a new urbanist real estate developer build um we've been working on trying to build sustainable communities and walkable places and we believe very much or i believe very much that the built environment and design can affect how we live with each other and how we react and and it can affect our our spirits and uh and um and so i've been dedicating a lot of my life to that on a professional level I also started a digital ad agency uh, about 10 years ago, which has been a fun business because I'm around a lot of young, smart people. But uh, during that time, Bob, as you know, my middle son Brennan was diagnosed with a case of, um, of with leukemia, AML, which is typically an adult type of leukemia. And um, he was uh, given a very grim prognosis. Actually, his prognosis after his first relapse was was nothing. We were told that there was nothing we could do for him. And we found our way to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, which um, was um, able to create protocols for Brennan, literally customized treatments for him. And four bone marrow transplants later, he's a miracle. And um, all that translated into me um, beginning to really um, hone my writing craft, I guess. I didn't know I had much of a craft for it. I was always a decent writer. But up through a blog that uh, went viral throughout when the the cancer years between 2009 and 2014, I ended up with close to 10,000 subscribers to this blog I had was reached out to by a publisher to write a book about our experience. And um, so for the last couple of years, I've been out um, finally getting uh, the book Possibilities on the market, and it was just released by a new publisher just last month, and um so I've been on the road doing a lot of that lately. So anyway, did that make a minute? I don't know. That's kind of hard to do.
0: <laughs> well, you know, this is why I wanted you to uh, to describe yourself because full disclosure, Turner and I are friends and we are connected through a, a, a charity, a pediatric cancer charity called the press Fund. And Turner actually brought me in um, along with the, uh, he, he and the, the Simpkins family and the Chance family uh, were involved in this. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, I know Turner, as are a few other cancer dads, we like to call Turner the southern most interesting man in the world. But I wanted our listeners to know all that you do, but yet you're the father of a child who's battled cancer and how that kind of, it doesn't matter what you do in life, once that happens to you, it changes everything. It
1: defines everything. It really does. And you're the most interesting yeah. guy, so I think it takes you know it's kind of the pot calling the kettle goal there because you're <laughs> you're uh yeah you, you know you're an amazing dad yourself, so I appreciate that compliment.
0: Well, thank you, Turner. The book is possibilities, perseverance, grace, and the story of one family's life with leukemia. I think any family that goes through something like this, they could write a book. Any parent could write a book. Um, each story is so unique and uh, so filled with ups and downs and and tragedy uh but Turner what's so great about your book is you are a writer the writing is so good and you kind of frame Brennan's struggle with AML leukemia uh in this context of the band of brothers and World War II can you talk a little bit about
1: that yeah you know when um this whole journey took around three and a half years, and when we, uh, Brennan was treated at the Children's Medical Center at Georgia Children's Hospital here in Augusta, and we were in the hospital for three solid months, and then from there, we went to Emory Children's of Atlanta for his first bone marrow transplant, so after about five months, you know, you're watching a lot of, you you know, Bob, I mean, you're in a hotel, I mean, in a hospital room forever, and you watch a lot of Disney Channel and a lot of DVDs and by the time we got to Atlanta, I was um, starting to let Brennan watch the stuff that I like. You know, Barney Fife and Andy Griffith. And then, of course, all the old classic war movies with Clint Eastwood and John Wayne Kelly's Heroes, that kind of stuff. And um, by, around the time uh, we were coming out of Atlanta, the first kid we got close to passed away. And um, and I was really nervous about Brennan's, you know, we knew how dangerous the transplant scene was and um i just let my guard down probably as a parent a little bit i said you know what i'm gonna let him watch saving private ryan and, and um and a lot of parents would be appalled at that but um i figured if he's if he knows kids are passing away he can handle this this movie and that led into the band of brothers and he became fascinated with major dick winters and the 101st airborne and uh, we were watching it was the third um episode of Band of Brothers, the ones when they're in Carentan And um, he said, he looked over to me and his mom. He said, you know, Mom, Dad, these guys got up every day not knowing if they're going to live to see another day. And yet they got up and they fought hard. And he felt like he could relate to them. And he became really just, he, so this kid is what, at the time he's eight, I'm currently on nine. He started reading, um, he bought the Dick Winters biography. He started reading all sorts of other um, diary war diaries and from you know all the different wars and uh, he became fascinated with it. as a matter of fact his make-a-wish wish was to go to normandy <laughs> the make-a-wish fairy was like what you where where is that she, you know is, is that in orlando <laughs> and um <laughs> where um but he did i mean he and he wanted to see the beaches he wanted to see where these guys experienced life and um it and um and and then it, his brothers were all infected by his enthusiasm and it really became part of defining who he was, and I and I do credit his association with those guys to his fighting spirit and his ability to hang in there. Because, like I said, I mean, he was given no chance, uh, and yet he 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 made it.
3: Turner, that's a, a compelling uh, aspect of the book is is that backdrop of the the Band of Brothers story, and I want to ask you about something. Uh, talking just a second ago about the identification, you know, how you identify yourself today. Early on in the book, uh, on your first trip to the hospital with Brennan, you and your wife, uh, you're carrying Brennan and you're stepping out of the elevator in the hospital and you're greeted by a young boy, bald head, tethered to his IV pole with its fluids and pumps and a bag of blood hanging on it, and, and you write this. You write, here we go, I said to Tara, holding her hand and walking into the rest of our lives. <laughs> and and that, is a, that is a loaded sentence, and I'm just curious, how much of that sense of the rest of your lives and, and, and what your lives were going to become. How much of that sense did you really have as you stepped off that elevator?
1: Well, I mean, thank God I didn't have all of it, because I, it would have been too overwhelming. Um, you know, I think God gives you doses of things that you can digest at that time, and our ability to digest more and more difficult things grew over time, you know, just conditioning oneself to like anything in life, whether it's exercise or, or war for that matter. Um, you know I mean I, there's also a line in the book where I talk about um, the guys and you know had, had, when the, you know when they invaded when the guys landed on the beaches in Normandy they thought were going to be done by Christmas had they, if they, somebody told them they were going to have to go to Bastogne I don't think they would have been you know it would have affected how they t- tackle that first day um, so you know that first day we had our heads in the sand to a large degree we knew that our lives were going to be different um, you know our as one um, child life specialist told us, our normal would be new and different from then on. But um, it, it, I think it was then that that's when that inward look, that sort of self-analysis every day that, you know, it's like, who am I? How am I dealing with this? How am I handling things as a parent, as a father, or as a guy that still has to make money so we can pay the bills uh, was something that I began to do more consciously Every day, and I think that's what translated into the writing, and that's how all that started.
0: When I when I read this book, when you gave it to me at Saint Jude over a year ago, it immediately took me back to my own journey with with my daughter Hallie, and I I wanted everyone that that knew me to read this book because this is the closest I can get to placing to allowing someone to walk in my shoes. But these weren't my shoes; these are your shoes, Turner. But I so identify with you know with the way you put this the the way you you turn these phrases um it's just it's just your writing is just so stark, you know it's just right. so it's, just yeah, it's so raw. real and and clear and you write in the book that that when you began to uh chronicle this journey in in care pages, uh you were receiving some criticism from friends and and loved ones that you were focusing on the dark moments rather than the small victories that came up.
1: Yeah, they, I was criticized, you know, and I think it was constructive criticism because, you know, I was, because the dark moments were, weren't so much about the darkness of Brennan's situation, but it was, I was, I would always acknowledge my flaws in the things that I was failing to do. At least I felt that I was failing to do as a parent, such as, you know, keeping my temper or um, you know, being short with Tara or um or you know if one of the kids was, you know, being a kid and, you know, you know, wanting to go to the movies or whatever it might be, you know, the little things that aggravate us as parents. I found myself catching myself more on that and I felt like that by writing about it, it was almost a confession of sorts. It was, you know, and that through doing that I could hopefully, you know, get better. Because the the one lesson that I learned throughout all this is that the only thing that we have, any of us have, is right now this moment that we have, and that you know we can't control what just happened. Uh, we Lord knows we can't predict what's gonna happen, or uh, but but we can hold on to that moment now. And if you know, and particularly when you have a kid with you that you don't know if he's gonna live to see another week or another year, those moments, um, you know, that value curve goes up exponentially. So. You know, I think I was, it was just an effort on my part to do that. And But people were always saying, Turner, go easy on yourself. You know, you know, back, you know, you're dealing with a lot. But um, anyway, I guess that's probably where that was coming from.
3: Well, in in uh, the writing of the book, Turner, a lot of it is, as uh, Bob said, and you guys were just talking, taken from blog posts or, or various writings that you and your wife had done along the way. And I know that you've been working to get the book published for a while. So there's, uh, it, it's been in the works for a little bit of time, but but your story, Brennan and your family's story, goes back to 2008, 2009. I'm curious, what was it like to go back and, and step back into those pages, those words written uh, so honestly day by day as it right. was happening fresh and, and revealing itself to you? What was that like yeah, when you had to turn it into a
1: book? It, it, it was really difficult. It was, you know, retrospectively, it was cathartic and necessary, um, you know, when I was talking about what I do for a living, I live in a community that we, that I'm involved with in my office is in a little building, just a block from my house. And I have a pretty cool little spot there with a desk and I would go to my office to write, you know, we'd have dinner and then I'd go to the house. We're back at home now. Brendan's still really sick, but we're home. And I had someone print out, um, who works with me, all of the blog posts. And it was like, it all added up to over 2000, by 11 pages and I would read through these things, and they were things that I honestly forgot. Um, and I guess it's, you know, our minds that are sort of a self-preservation, they're like, this is pretty heavy, you need to, you know, block that away. Kind of like people, you hear about people that are in car accidents that forget, you know, the pain and the and the, all the fears. You know, it just, your brain just cl- clears it out. Well, I had to go back and, and readdress those things. And there were moments um, particularly... Um, the moments when Brennan was in ICU and we thought that he, we, we, you know, we gave our kid last rites. We brought his brothers in to tell him goodbye. And another moment when we had to say goodbye to this girl, Cassidy Clark, who was just an an amazing gift for us. I would be alone in my office with my chest, those chest heaving cries, like a little kid does that you just can't, that, (gasps) those gasping cries, you know, and just literally pouring to your tears and, um. Obviously, that was important. I mean, you know, thank God for this because Lord knows how stuff. I mean, you would have bottled up. Bob, you and I talk about look the post traumatic stress issues of this stuff.
2: Absolutely. You know, you're living on
1: adrenaline for so long, and then you come back. It's hard to just die. You can't just plug back in. I mean, you know I mean, and so all of that, Keith, was just it was it was it was necessary. I think it, it was a purging of sorts.
0: Uh, ter- uh, Brennan had a a, co- a complex, uh, form of AML. I mean, if there isn't, if just having leukemia is not complex enough, his was particularly complex. Could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, he had what's called AML 7Q deletion, which was there was a certain abnormality in a certain chromosome, which put him into a particularly bad basket of apples. Um, it's a very vigorous type of cancer um even though we got him into remission pretty quickly for the first chemo cycle and he sailed through his first bone marrow transplant the cancer kept coming back and we found out that it was resistant to basically it was totally resistant to chemo i mean it'd knock it back but it would find a way to get stronger and um that was where the guys from saint jude came in and really showed their magic because they said all right this stuff is not responding to conventional cancer therapies We need to create an immunotherapy approach, um, which is what they did for the second and third transplants. The first transplant, those of you who are not familiar with why you have a bone marrow transplant, is you're effectively replacing your immune system with someone else's so that the other person's immune system will see the cancer as foreign, just like it would have bought virus or bacteria or whatever. Um, They want to have a perfect match. Um, or as close of a perfect match as you can, because they don't want the can the excuse me the new immune system attacking the the rest of the human being. That's called graft versus host disease. You're the host, and the graft comes in, and it's like you want it to attack the cancer, but you don't want it to attack your brain and your you know your lungs. But his first two transplants were so perfect or so close that they didn't recognize the cancer as anything foreign. So St. Jude created what's called a half match protocol where. I was the donor. As a parent, I'm only a half match, right? He's half his mom. He's half me. And um, you know, when I mentioned that to the doctors here, they were they, you know, they thought I was talking voodoo. You know, they were like, that's, you know, that's, that's so dangerous. But the guys at St. Jude had crafted that practice so that the the half that didn't match took over so strong and so virulently that it, it it did. It got him intermission, but it almost killed him too. Uh, but now St. Jude is actually having as much success with half matches as they are with perfect matches, which is really good because that means kids don't have to have as much chemo as Brennan had. So, um, you know, while it's sad that Brennan had to be exposed to all that toxicity, we are also glad to know that because of him, other kids don't.
3: Turner, I want to ask you a question here as sort of an outsider to an aspect of you and Bob, who, uh, you know, Bob with Hallie and, and you with Brennan. You guys are St. Jude families now. Yeah, and and we know this name, uh, Saint Jude. My gosh, the, the first, <laughs> the first thing in radio and anything to do with kids and fundraising and help that I ever had to do with was a Saint Jude radiothon in in Chicago in about 1973. And and so this iconic name, Saint Jude, and you talk about going there and being there, and Bob and Hal, you've been there. But your story starts with the hospitals in Augusta, and then you're going to Emory, and the transplant begins there. I mean, I'm just curious, how do you become Like, like what actually happens that, okay, now you're in contact with St. Jude and you become a St. Jude family?
1: Well, you know, I mean, Bob, I guess you'd say the same thing, Bob. You know, St. Jude is a patron state of lost causes. And it's effectively kids that are in catastrophic situations. They take the worst cases of the worst cases. Now, now they do take some, you know, more pedestrian cancers that sounds bad but I mean St. Jude is the children's cancer hospital for people in that part of the world so but it is you know just like the Augusta hospital is here and so forth but for the cases like Hallie and Brennan when you like the the really difficult brain tumors and the really difficult leukemias and bone cancers there's other places are just over their skis to be quite honest with it and um St. Jude is um you know they're willing to, to to try. I mean they're they're not so much worried about their batting averages. You see hospitals that say, "Oh, we have a ninety eight percent cure rate." Well, that's great if you. But you know, but they're not taking on the Hallies and the Brennans either. You know, but but I mean, does no-
3: your existing medical team at some point say, uh, Brennan, uh, you know we're running up against what we can run up against here. We need to talk to somebody else, or do you say? Hey, I, you know, we've been through X rounds of this. We need to try something else. How does it actually
1: turn, and and you become a part of the Saint Jude process? Well, I guess everybody's different, Bob. You can tell us about yours. In our case, um, we were given no chance. And when we went back to Emory, when Brennan relapsed the first time, we went back to Emory expecting them to say, "All right, we're gonna, this is what we've got." You know, as for Plan B, and their Plan B was hospice. They told us that there was nothing that they could do. And we said, well, give us a phone number from someone else. And they said, no, that phone number doesn't exist. No one else can do anything. That it's it. That the standard of care will not allow a second bone marrow transplant within a, a in within a 12 month period. That it's insurvivable. So we weren't given any choice but to keep turning over rocks. And Unfortunately, our oncologist in Augusta is a friend, and she was working as much you know as a friend and someone who loved us and loved our kid as she was a, a physician. Uh, um, and we basically divided and conquered. My wife took a list. She took a list. I took a list. And as a matter of fact, St. Jude was crossed off the list for some reason. I think she's the one that um, that the, our doctor um, had contacted them. And I don't know what that conversation was, but we actually almost didn't go there. We were going to Philadelphia. Uh, we had Children's of Philadelphia was going to take Brennan. They said they would do a second transplant if we could get him into remission again. But at the 11th hour, I got a, there's a guy, Bob, um Waller, who's actually used to be with Mayo Clinic, who lives in Memphis. He's a friend of my dad's, and he sits on a board with Bill Evans, or sat on a board with Dr. Evans, who was the CEO at St. Jude at the time. And he called me and said, hey, I hear you're going to Philadelphia, but you should try St. Jude. I said, well, we did, but we're not going. We're going to Philadelphia next Friday. I mean, this was like five days. <laughs> and he begged me to go back, and we went to St. Jude and and – and changed our minds. We felt like St. Jude was better for our family because they would allow his brothers to be with him, which was so important. Best case, worst case, he needed to be with his brothers. Philadelphia, they wouldn't allow that. And thank God for it because had we gone to, when they could not get him into a second remission. And had we gone to Philadelphia, that would have been game over for sure. But that's why we ended up there because it was, um, we literally, it was just, we didn't have any other choices. I mean, we, and um, we just were in, you know, Bob, I mean, you, why don't you tell us your side of it?
0: <laughs> well, very similar. Where at UNC they gave Hallie no chance. They um, they said we'll pull something off the shelf for her, like a chemo regimen that they'll just pull off the shelf. They were gonna have another meeting and bring in some experts from other places, and they were really giving her. They were talking about these are the this is the exact quote: uh, longevity and quality of life over survival. And so again, like you it was like this crazy desperate. Search to find someone that would take her, and you know that all these St. Jude stories have a little bit of magic to them. They do a little bit they? of chance, a little bit of chance, a little bit of dumb luck. And uh, yeah. I, I spoke, I spoke to someone uh, here, and they had the cell phone of a radi- radiation oncologist from St. Jude, and I finally got in touch with him on a Sunday night, and he told me to call somebody on Monday morning. Monday night, they called us and they said, if you can be here by Wednesday, we can take her. And just like this crazy sequence of of, of events that, um, and you don't even know why. We didn't know why we were going to St. Jude. We didn't know what it was we were taking her there for. We were just told UNC, we can't help her. And we had nowhere else to go. And this was hope. Yeah. So it was great. It was just, it's just amazing. It's it's incredible.
1: Well, I don't believe in coincidences anymore.
3: To that point right there, I I was reading the description. Uh, If you read on Amazon, the description of, of the book says, unwilling to accept a hopelessly terminal diagnosis, Brennan's parents found the one researcher willing to design a new treatment protocol. I've known several parents unwilling to accept a hopelessly terminal diagnosis. Many of them still lost their children. And so this notion that what you guys are talking about right now is from hopelessness, how does something else still happen? And 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 what did it, what caused it, it is just a story. And they may be different. It may be different for somebody else next time. But there's something in persistence in trying and creativity that uh, I just think has to get out there. You guys and your families are great examples of that.
1: Well, you know, I appreciate that. But at the same time, I want to make sure I'm careful that, you know, there. Cause it's rough on these kids. I mean, what Brennan went through, you know, particularly when we, the fourth, matter of fact, the fourth transplant, our main transplant guy at St. Jude told us he did not recommend doing it. He said, listen, you guys have already done more than anybody I've ever seen here. What he's going to go through is going to be painful. It's going to, he's going to be sick and he can go home and have, enjoy some quality of life for a few months with his friends and his dog and go out without pain. Um, but we knew and he said you got like a less than one percent chance of surviving this thing but by that time brennan had been in the hospital for what almost a third more than a third of his life and um in the quality of life i mean we had family our family by that time were the nurses they were the doctors they were the other kids and there was quality of life in brennan's case and fighting that in um that was the quality uh just like the guys you hear you know, from the, in Afghanistan that go back for third and fourth tours. I mean, that's where their bond is. But, it's, um, but at the same time, some people don't take that choice, and I have to respect that. And, uh, and Cassidy, the girl I was just talking about, she was given a chance for a fourth transplant, and she chose not to do it. Her mom had passed away uh, when she was young, and she decided she wanted to go be with her mother. And can you imagine a nine-year-old kid making that decision? My God, I mean, I, I almost have more respect for that than I do for us. Um,
0: yeah, God, Turner. Like, guys, it's like, why have Hallie and Brennan survived to this point and so many other beautiful, precious children that deserve to survive? Why did they not make it? I mean, St. Jude is a hard place, right? We have miracles that are here with us today. We don't know about tomorrow. But you know, a lot of these kids don't make it, and that's why we're here. Like, right? That's why you wrote this book, Turner. That's why we do the Press On Fund. That's why St. Jude raises so much money, and that—that's what all these. There's many institutions around the country that that have really taken on this the pediatric cancer fight. Um, And we don't know why some make it and some don't. We don't know why. And that brings me to another question for you about your faith. Where was your faith before this started, and what was that journey of faith you made throughout Brennan's illness, and, and where is it today?
1: Yeah, the faith journey is an interesting one. Um, you know, I was you know raised in a traditional Southern Christian family. We weren't, you know, hyper Bible belters by any means, um, but we were, you know, went to church every week and all that. My wife is a cradle Catholic. Um very devout mom and dad, great family. Um, and um, about three years before Brennan got sick, I decided to go through RCIA class, which is the Right for Christian Initiation at the Catholic Church. I didn't tell Tara I was doing it. I just stuck my toe in the water. I went to a different parish, and the reason I did it was because that way I figured if I quit, nobody would know. <laughs> um, but it was meaningful for me at the time. I really connected with the priest, and um, I was, you know, I've always read a lot of philosophy, read a lot of, you know, things about, you know, metaphysical. Type subjects, and um, and thank God for it because it really gave me uh, a um, what's the word a habit I guess of sorts and a practice for reflection. Um, I talk about there. I had to learn to pray. I you know I, don't, I mean how do you pray? I mean you, that's not something that's a very personal thing, um, but you know every. Catholic Church has a mass every day, sometimes multiple masses every day, and it gave me a place whether I was in Memphis or Atlanta where I could go and be quiet for a half an hour or an hour. I mean, I may be in a mass, I'm probably not hearing a word that the priest is saying anything, but it's a quiet place and it's um, a place for me to reflect and to um, and to become to find a mindful sense of mindfulness and centeredness. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not. I'm not going to push, you know, my particular set of beliefs on anyone, but I do believe that um, everyone fundamentally has a common thread that we all share. And, you know, you know, we say God is love and Jesus Christ is our conduit to that. That's something I personally believe, but everybody, but, you know, everybody has loves their children. You know, we can all share that. And that's something that, you know, how we define it. I'm this, you know, I'm over my head there. Um, but, I do think it's something that connects everyone on the, in this world, and I think, therefore, it connects us after we leave it.
3: Do you believe, Turner, that, that faith, uh, God directly heals Brennan? Or do you believe that, that faith gets you and Brennan and your family through whatever it is you're, you're going to go through?
1: I think faith got us through things. You know, I, I have a hard time saying God singled out Brennan because there's so many other kids. Um, who didn't. Um, But at the same time, God's plan, Patrick Chance, for example, who passed away on his 10th birthday, what that kid did and the consequences of his existence on this planet and the ripple effect of what he's done, which translated into the press on, fun and other stuff, is probably profoundly more, uh, had more of an impact than a lot of people who die at 80 years old. you know, so we don't know, you know, these little kids that passed away young, there is a ripple effect. We are not able to define what that is. So, maybe part of God's plan was for Brennan to, to, you know, I, I'm not about to presume to say that. Um, I just don't, you know, it's just not fair, I don't think, for me to presume that. At the same time, I do think, I do believe that there's a plan um, and um, and if that's part of it, then, you know, um, I think that, anyway, it's, it's just difficult for me to say. I mean, I, it's just such a, I have a very difficult time when I think about all these other kids.
0: Tell us about Brennan today. How's he doing?
1: Uh he's amazing, you know. I mean he's he's hardly taking any meds really. He takes Synthroid um, because his thyroid gland got zapped. Uh, I take Synthroid. <laughs> Mine got zapped too. So, you know, um <laughs> I uh he's in a, he's a he's a freshman in high school, which is really difficult to believe. Um, he's, um, he's little, you know, all of the stuff we pumped into him has affected his growth. I mean, uh, who knows, maybe he's going to be smaller anyway, but he was a very athletic young, young guy before he got sick. Um, he's still very competitive. He's on the, he, you know, he's got a lot of catching up to do. I mean, thankfully, the, the curriculum in a lot of schools, they have, you know, a, there's a lowest common denominator factor in a lot of our school systems, and Brennan benefits by that because uh, he has been allowed to um, keep up with his peer group. But he's so far behind in things like math, you know, um, you know, think about it. you drop out of first grade and back into six, you're going to be behind. But he is um, also. Um, you know, really sharp when it comes to the new stuff. His memory, his short term memory is, is affected, and that's, we know that's a side effect of it. Matter of fact, we're going back to St. June in January. We're going to, you know, the neuropsych is a big part of it to find out what the long term consequences are of that, you know, his ability to live independently when he gets older. But um, listen, those are problems we're happy to have. You know, I mean, I mean, just like the stuff that you guys are dealing with Hallie, I mean, you know, that's, I mean, you'll take her that way, right? I mean,
0: Agreed. We 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 went to a neurologist yesterday for some seizures and just some just to kind of catch up with him. And and he was the neurologist who saw her hours after her initial resection, which was a she was literally dying. The tumor was so large; it was uh, the pressure had risen so high in her brain. She was having strokes, and she was dying. And they did this emergency, emergency surgery, and they took it out a large part of her brain. She had more strokes, and. We, he was the one of the doctors who told us the worst of the worst that she would probably not survive if she did. She, she would not ever be able to do much at all. And, and to see him yesterday, and he said, Man, this kid's a hot ticket. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and it just like, just, it's, it's, a, it's, it is a miracle just with all the, uh, all the things that she has to deal with on a daily basis and all the setbacks and, and just, um, being so sad for what she lost we're just so happy to have her yeah
1: i know yeah because these kids our kids miss childhood (laughs) um but you know but they're they have been blessed with gifts that um that are you know they're teachers is the way i look at them you know these little kids are teachers and i've learned a lot from every one of them
3: I want to ask you guys, though, and and Bob, I'm sure you're planning on getting there, so I, I don't mean to jump ahead too soon. But with the backdrop of, you know, talking about, yeah, some kids don't make it, and and with the backdrop of talking about, okay, Hallie's struggles still, and and even uh, things for, for Brennan. I I guess what I want to ask is, uh, you know, here in Charlotte, there's a woman by the name of Erin Santos. I I think you know her, uh, Turner. Uh, the the uh, Isabella Santos Foundation, the IS yeah, Foundation. Sure. And Erin and, uh, is, is uh, said something that stuck with me in the last few years around Pediatric Cancer Awareness Month. And she said, you know, enough with the awareness. We need action. Right. And, and, and it, it gets inside me when I think about, okay, 2,000. They, they say 15, 16,000 kids in the U.S. a year are diagnosed with cancer. 2,000 die and I think about if, if a terrorist were randomly killing and and, and hurting horribly, changing the lives of, of 2,000, 16,000 kids a year in the U.S., what our country's response would be. And I'm unable to process that. So I guess I'm interested in your... Uh, founding of and and your participation in the Press On Fund and and the things
1: you're trying to do to try to get action, Bob. You want to answer that? Or you want me to? I think you're more dialed into the legislation side of it.
0: Well, I think that. Well, we just we just saw the passage of the 21st Century Cures Act, which hopefully will streamline getting um, uh, drugs to drugs to the bedside a lot faster. There are many complicated reasons why. Uh, a doctor or a researcher may want to get a hold of a certain drug f- for a potential protocol to, uh, to treat a particular kind of cancer, and there are all these roadblocks, and it's a slow, it's a slow process, and, and I think that this 21st Century Cures Act, which I think was renamed the Bo Biden Cancer Act, that, that, um, that should help out. And that that's a big one, but I think Turner would would be great is if, if you told everybody about the history of the Press On Fund, which mm-hmm. you and I are both involved with.
1: Right. Well, you know the you know as Keith alluded to that you know less than four percent of all the NIH funding goes to pediatrics, and um, which is pathetic, particularly on the drug side of it. There's no profit, um, which is sad. Um, Press On was started by Stephen and Aaron Chance for Patrick, who I just mentioned. If Patrick had neuroblastoma. Um, they were, a, he was in re he was in remission from stage four neuroblastoma, but they knew that no kid had survived that they were aware of a relapsed neuroblastoma at that time. And that they felt like it was their incumbent upon them to invest in things to keep Patrick alive in the event that he relapsed until a cure could be found. And then we, um... Of course, by that time, we knew how bad relapse AML was, so we jumped on board, and we decided we'd just split the kitty. We'd Whatever money we'd raise through bake sales, just grassroots, family stuff, we would just split AML, neuroblastoma. Um, and um, one of the first things that we did, um, actually, which alludes to what Bob was talking about, there was a drug called Turbo 3F8. It was on the shelf in Sloan-Kettering, and it was a, an antibody for, um, that would target um, neuroblastoma cancer cells. And it was very expensive, I can't remember which pharmaceutical company ended up getting involved with it, but it was on the shelf and it wasn't being produced. And so we put up, uh, we raised some money. We put up 200 grand and we had like five other grassroots organizations like ours match it. And then Pepsi ended up matching, uh, put up a million bucks and we got it off the shelves and into the, into the clinics. And it's a shame that um, it takes us to do that. But until, uh, pediatric cancer gets funded the way it needs to be we're, we, we do serve a role and this is important for us to, to continue to do what we do both on the awareness side and in terms of what we're you know what we're accomplishing on the clinic side but press on you know we're we run by it's the crawfords the simpkins and the chances we've got volunteers to do everything if we you know we've got a website but we you know n- none of the money we raise goes to pay for the website or anything else if we have an event people sponsor the event so uh, every dime we raise goes to research and um, that fact alone has allowed us to really make a difference, and we've started raising some pretty serious money. Um, you know, people know if they go to some of the, I'm not going to mention any names, but some of the bigger names out there in the worlds of cancer research, you know, they've got uh, offices in Manhattan and employees and everything else. And so a lot of it goes to overhead. We don't have anything to go to overhead. It all goes to, all goes to the good.
3: You say in the book that you hope in its in its honesty and brutal truth and and in your family's uh, experience with Brennan, you hope that the book will be a help to other families in your yeah. circumstance. And, and I wonder, have you heard from any? Do you know if that's yeah? I've heard the from case? a lot what, of people. What kind actually, of it's,
1: um, it's it's really been rewarding on that level, and you know, just one person to me makes it worth all the effort that I had to go to, but. Um, I had I was on a doing a book tour, Tara and I out this past summer, where um on the West Coast and doing some speaking engagements, and I'm walking through, you know, I'm at the book thing, you know, and there's um people walking by and grabbing books for autographs, and this man walks up to me, he's looking me straight in the eye, and I'm thinking, do I know this guy? You know, it's that type of look where you're thinking I'm supposed to know his name or whatever. He walks up, gives me a big bear hug, and just starts weeping and says, "You have changed." You have totally changed my life. He goes, I was in such a dark place and and you know, this guy had lost his wife to, to cancer. And the book had allowed him to to reconcile himself with how difficult that was. And I couldn't it was just overwhelming to think of how a total stranger has been affected by something that I wrote. Um so yeah, it's worth it. You know, I mean, I, you know, I'm hoping I, I do. I'm not hopeful is a lot of people will be able to have that experience. But even if it doesn't, you know, sell another copy, it's already been worth the effort. That's incredible. But I do. I get emails all the time. There are a lot of um, you know, letters from people. People reaching out to us on Facebook. So it's it's definitely touching a lot of folks.
0: Turner, tell people where they can get the
1: book. Well, uh, Walmart, which is crazy. Um, the main buyer from Walmart liked my book and they've got it in the bestseller section, which is pretty impressive. I see my book there next to Paul Young and, um, Rush Limbaugh of all people. I mean, it's right there (laughs) in the bestseller. (laughs) And, um, I have, uh, you of course you can get on Amazon as you can anything. Um, but, um, you can read all the, um, and there's also, I have a website, possibilitiesbook.com, where you can read about a little bit about the book and some excerpts and, I've got a number of interviews on there um, and uh, a lot of reviews and that kind of thing. So, you know, if somebody wants to make sure they want to read it, they can get all the background from that. But, you know, I've, I've been really blessed in that uh, the book has been embraced in the literary community in a very major way. So I've had some some writers who, I mean, big time writers that tell me it's a really good book. And that's, that's, a, I'm, I'm still kind of pinching myself on, over that, but, um, it's it, something it's else. So
0: well written Turner. I mean, you, you just, you're a writer. I mean, it's so great. It's just so this, the story, obviously, like, like I said, any parent who's been through this could write a book. Yours in particular is, uh, I think so powerful because uh, you're writing, your skill with words it, it's 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 very strong. Um, I I will never forget. I just want to tell this story for everybody. The first time I met Turner, that I know that I remembered. I may have met him at um, a place, the Stillwater uh, in Augusta when the Aver brothers were playing there in 2006 or whatever. <laughs> but the first time I remember meeting Turner, Hallie. Now at St. Jude, if your child has the flu or if they have uh, some kind of communicable illness, they get put in what's called isolation, okay? And Hallie had, I mean, it's, it's embarrassing to say, but almost her whole time, if you are on chemotherapy, you may have this thing called C. diff, and it's like a diarrhea. And it's like really painful cramping and... They so they, And it's very, very, very contagious. And people who have chemotherapy are really sensitive to getting that. And Hallie had it almost her whole time at St. Jude. It was really, really sad for her. And, and it's really terrible. And they, they make you come in a different entrance, and they put these gowns on you and cover up the child. And you're just, you are, they put a guard, like not a guard, but there's a nurse with you at all times to make sure that you don't kind of associate with the rest of the population. Right. And Hallie... Hallie had to get platelets. So also when you're on chemotherapy, your your platelets will drop and your blood counts will drop and you often get a fevers and you'll get sick and, and you'll need, or you'll need like blood transfusions. Hallie had many of them and she was getting platelets one day and so we were in what they call the medicine room at St. Jude in the isolation section of the medicine room and uh, the medicine room is almost like the ER in a lot of ways uh, of St. Jude. So I'm going to get probably Hallie some cheese sticks or something. <laughs> and I come back in and this guy's like, Hey, you're Bob Crawford from the Ava brothers. And I'm like, okay, somebody's recognizing me at the medicine room of St. Jude. <laughs> this is crazy. But that's when I met Turner and it was a day that, and it was so good to meet you Turner that day. Cause I needed to meet you that day. Like you just, just meeting you brought my spirits up. And that was a day that you got some really good news for Brennan. That was like towards the end for yeah. you guys.
1: Right. Exactly, we were. um, He was. He had a really bad case of graft versus host disease, and which is the number one killer of transplant patients outside of relapse. And um, we were. He. This was right around the first of the year, if I recall, because we we were in Augusta. He went to the hospital, and they said we need to get him back to St. Jude. We all packed up our gear, moved back into Target House, put the other boys into school. We thought, here we go again, another year in, in Memphis. And then that day the doctor said that they felt like they had it under control and he could come home again. So we were, um, really at the tail end and I, I knew I'd heard that Bob was there. I'd just seen his name on the thing. And I, I, although I didn't know you, I, you know, I, I knew who you guys were and I knew people who knew the avits and this and that. And I felt like that, you know, we were cut out of somewhat of the same cloth. We liked the same type of music at least and we can relate in that area. And, um, Anyway, it was just yeah. I I feel the same way. I was sad that I didn't get to, s- to see you more after that, but our obviously um, God's plan was what it was, and here we are.
0: Amen. All right. Well, Turner, thank you so much, Keith. Anything else to add? No,
3: I just appreciate uh, that you let me be a part of the conversation and get to know Turner a little bit and and Brennan through him, and the, and that you guys in getting together and and what the Chance family started is this press-on fund now that is after action. And, and it allowed me to ride a shopping cart through a, a grocery store parking <laughs> lot right. to, to have a little fun. <laughs> I love the idea of play it forward for uh, the press-on fund. So I, I just uh, thank you guys for what you're doing and for being a part
0: of the conversation today, Bob. Oh,
1: my gosh. Thank play you, you, man.
0: Yeah, play it forward, which Keith participated in, was started by Tara, uh, Turner's wife. And we'll be doing it again next year. Yeah, We'll let you guys all know about it. That's great.
1: Well, cool. That'll give us a chance to get back together again. I'll look forward to that.
0: Absolutely. Thanks a lot, guys, and have a great holiday.
1: Thanks, y'all. You too.
0: Well, thank you for joining us today on The Road to Now. Please be sure and pick up Turner Simpkins' book, Possibilities, Perseverance, Grace, and the Story of One Family's Life with Leukemia available at Walmart or on Amazon.com. We'd also like to thank Keith Larson for joining us today as our co-host. You can visit him at thelarsonpage.com, L-A-R-S-O-N. And today's show was produced by Bob Crawford, Ben Sawyer, and Ian Scada. Nick Corgan edited this program. Music, as always, by Paul DeFiglia. Thanks a lot for listening. Hope you guys have a great holiday, and we'll see you again soon.